Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. This week on Product Love, I talked to Radhika, an author and the co-founder of Radical Product. Radical Product is a new methodology being adopted by leaders to systematically build successful, world-changing products. So Radhika and I talked about the ethical responsibility that product managers have, and we talked a little bit about how much responsibility they should have. You know, many product leaders today study behavioral design and design thinking, and and they do so in an effort to affect their customers day-to-day as well as influence their habits. And with some products today and the amount of reach those products have, there's an implied level of responsibility, I think, attached to them. Radica likens this to how doctors have a strong sense of responsibility to their patients. You know, way back when this was encapsulated, and to some extent still is today, in the Hippocratic Oath that was designed to hold them accountable for all the lives that they touched. So all of this got me to thinking about the theme of responsibility in product. PMs are encouraged to build sticky, engaging products, but they also need to be aware of the unintended consequences of their behavioral design and their products themselves. What I think we should do is to try to understand these consequences and make sure our products are always doing right by our users. And really, maybe product managers, should we have our own oath? Let me know at ebodic at pendo.io or reach out to me at ebodic on Twitter. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I am with Radhika Dutt, the founder of the Radical Product Movement and soon to be author of a new book called Radical Product Thinking. Well, why don't we start this off with you giving us a little overview of your background? Thanks, Eric. So to give you a quick summary of my background, I started and sold my own companies, and I've also worked in much larger organizations. So the first company that I started, it was called Lobby 7. And this was back in 2000, where wireless was just starting to become a thing. What we built back then was what you'd call now the early version of Siri. And we were entirely too early to the market, right? But that was my first experience with product. More recently, I started a company called Likely, where we built what you would call Netflix for wine, so that you can find wines that you're likely to like. And then, you know, I've also led product in different organizations. I think the one highlight I'll say is that throughout my career in the last 20 years, I've never held, uh, you know, two consecutive jobs in the same industry. So which means I've worked in a range of industries from, you know, broadcast to telecom, advertising, AI, finance, let's see, nonprofit. And right now, actually, I'm working with uh, government. 
So I'm actually uh, currently an advisor to the Monetary Authority of Singapore, where we're working on applying product thinking. And the Monetary Authority is the Reserve Bank of Singapore. So that brings me to today, you know, just having worked across a range of industries and sizes of organizations. And that's kind of what led me to Radical Product. So talk to me a little bit about the the range. I mean, that's very interesting. I often run into product managers that maybe spend 20 years in fintech, right, at a number of different companies. But you've worked from places like you know, Cisco, a large company, all the way down to small companies, like starting from the beginning with Likely and across a variety of different markets, whether it be networking, uh, whether it be e-commerce with uh, Likely. Talk to me about your choices and why you ended up having such a diverse uh, area of expertise versus a more concentrated focused area. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because when I first started out in my career, and I bounced around between these industries, I used to actually think that, oh, you know, I need to focus in one industry, right? Because that's what you usually advise, that you really need to develop expertise in one. But what I've really realized is that product is a way of thinking, that it's really not about having expertise in a certain area, unless, you know, you're deeply, deeply technical, right? So if you're in biotech and deeply biotech, you know, that's, you kind of need a PhD in biotech. So that part I can understand. But I think for almost every industry, I'll say that it's really helpful to think of product really as a way of thinking. And it's about asking the right questions. So in looking back, you know, a lot of what was relevant to how we thought about building a product for broadcast is just as relevant to, you know, building a product in finance. Uh, In the end, you're thinking about whose world am I trying to change? And what does that world look like? And how am I going to change it? Yeah, I like that. I I agree with you, too. I think Product is a, a process. It's a way of thinking. And I, I think in some cases, domain expertise to some extent is a little over overvalued. So talk to me about your mission at Radical Product. Yeah, so Radical Product, we founded that as a movement of leaders creating vision-driven change. And I founded this movement uh, with two other people, Jody Cadiz and Nidhi Agarwal. And, you know, what we realized was that they had had similar experiences as I did, which is that, you know, across all of these different industries and sizes of organizations, we all kept seeing the same, what we started calling, you know, diseases, right? We kept seeing these over and over. So to explain what I mean by diseases, right? One very common disease that I think every product manager has seen is um, obsessive sales disorder. So obsessive sales disorder, like we've all seen it where your salesperson comes to you and says, you know, we can win this big marquee client. All you need to do is just add this one custom feature, right? And it sounds mostly harmless. And you say yes to a couple of these. And soon, you know, by the end of the year, you're sitting with a stack of contracts and your entire roadmap is driven by all of these contractual commitments, right? And I've definitely done this myself. So, you know, I'm speaking about some of these diseases having run into them. But another example is uh, pivotitis, where almost every sprint can become a pivot, right? So what we're asking ourselves is, you know, there are all these diseases that just keep coming up, 
And we see that there are some PMs who are just really innately good, and there are others who aren't. So the question we asked ourselves is, are we just, you know, should we resign ourselves to faith that these are the diseases that come up and there are just some good PMs and others who aren't? Or can we actually teach product thinking systematically? Is there a way to build products in a very repeatable and systematic way? And that really started this radical product thinking. And, you know, as we started getting more and more into this, we really realized the deeper need for societal change where we need vision-driven thinking as business leaders beyond just, you know, us in product. Uh, in business, we really need more of this vision-driven thinking. And that's really how Radical Product started as a movement. Yeah. So take me through exactly what Radical Product thinking is and maybe share an example. Yeah. So Radical Product thinking really means that you know, we first need to think about the change we want to bring to the world. And we need to think about our product as a mechanism for creating that change. So let me, let me actually walk through an example. The example I want to give you is a company that, an organization actually, that, you know, most of us haven't heard of, right? And this organization is called Lidget. Let me, let me start by asking you a question. Have you tried, you know, the lentil crackers or papadums in Indian restaurants? Yes. Excellent. So if you've had those lentil crackers or papadums, then you've almost certainly tasted Lidget's products. So Lidget has over 60% market share in papadums. And they employ over 45,000 people and they have revenues of over $200 million USD. So, you know, it's this organization, when you look at kind of their product, right, they never started off trying to dominate the puppetum market. It was never about being the leader in puppetums. So they started in 1959. So that's like 60 years ago. And it was started by actually seven women. They were all, you know, housewives and they, um, they came from rather poor families. So their goal was they wanted to just earn a dignified living for themselves. They didn't want to be dependent on their husbands to be able to earn a living. And so they decided that, you know, they would, and, and by the way, they also didn't have an education. So their job prospects were really limited they felt like the one skill that they had was cooking. And so they realized this market need, which was, you know, papadums are really hard to make at home. So even though, you know, in Indian families, you want to eat papadums, like your grandmother is the one who would make them. And, you know, there's like I, I, my own mom, for instance, you know, it just takes too much effort, like working families, they just wouldn't make papadums at home. And so they realized this market need for making those papadums that taste like your grandma made them, but it doesn't take all that effort. And so they started selling these papadums. But one thing that they did that was really core to their vision was they said, you know, we will never take charity. The seven women who started out, they said, you know, even if we make a loss, we'll share it equally amongst ourselves. If we make a profit, we'll share it equally. And this thing just really took off. So what happened was over the course of like three months, they grew to 25. Over, you know, a year, they became 300 women who are rolling out papadums. And today, Lidget is 45,000 women who are all equal partners in this organization. And 
they have managed to really change the lives of all these women who are able to have this dignified living. They're able to educate their kids so that their kids are now, you know, actually working professionals and they've been able to raise themselves out of poverty. So the reason I bring this back to radical product thinking is that the vision was not about just bupperdoms. The vision was much bigger. It was about changing the lives of these women. And bupperdoms was just a vehicle, was their mechanism, and it was their product at the time to be able to bring about that change. And now Lidget has expanded into detergents, you know, incense, spices, etc. And they have really a wide range of products. But this is really kind of the essence of radical product thinking, right? Where you separate the impact that you want to create in this world from your product. And you know, where I give Lidget as the positive example, I also want to share an example of what happens when we don't first envision the change we want to bring to the world and we just build a product, right? So the example I want to give you is starting with the vision of open and connected. (laughs) And we all know that that's the vision that Facebook started with. Now, the issue is that, you know, while open and connected sounds good, it doesn't really explain what does that world look like that you're trying to create with that product? What does open and connected actually look like? And so then you build a product that becomes successful, right? And I say that in air quotes, by every popular metric you would measure, whether it's revenues, time spent, etc., it looks like a tremendous success. But if we think about it from this radical product thinking angle, the real question is, what's the change that you were trying to create with your product? And did your product succeed in creating that change? So if we think about it from that perspective, you know, Facebook creating this very divided society, etc., Is it really a successful product? Like what's really the change they wanted to create in the world? And really in the long term, that's kind of how we'll look back in history and judge Facebook. So that's what I mean by vision-driven change, starting with what's the change you want to bring and then building your product to be able to create that change. Yeah, I like this. I mean, you hear a lot more about mission-driven companies today. And I think this vision-driven product ties really well into that. So take me through some of the ideas that this will end up challenging in traditional product management. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest ideas is that, you know, today our process of building products really focuses on iteration. So the model that we've all accepted is, you know, the build, test, learn, scale model. And, you know, it means just throw something in the market and let's see what works, uh, our customers using it, and then iteratively keep building on that, right? And what happens is that, you know, techniques like lean and agile, they are great in that they give you speed, right? But they don't tell you where you need to be going. So by all means, I think we need to be using lean and agile. And, you know, this is something I definitely apply as well. But what we really need to figure out is what's the right direction, right? So that when we add direction to it by having a very clear vision and strategy, then we can actually apply lean and agile so that you have direction plus speed, which means you actually have velocity in the direction you want to be going. So that's really what I want to challenge in product management, that 
while it's become really easy to build products just through iteration, we actually need to take a step back that we don't have to move fast and break things. We can move fast by starting with a vision and strategy and then executing really fast by having direction and that, and that speed. Yeah, I like that. I mean, you hear a lot of what Agile's given us in some ways is, is speed, like you've said, and it, it's moved us into this issue or it's created this issue for us where, you know, we often will develop feature factories where people are just pumping out features very quickly. And those features can be taking the product in the wrong way, and <laughs> which is the worst case. And at the best case, maybe they're in a lot of cases just adding bloat, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah, we call that, you know, strategic swelling, right? Where a product starts out really well. And then, you know, your customers say, oh, you know, let's just add this one other thing and I can use it for this other reason as well, right? And and this is where you keep adding features to it. And that's exactly the product disease where you get to a point where you no longer even recognize your product. And a lot of that starts without, with this lack of very clear vision and a strategy. So you mentioned a couple of product diseases, obsessive sales disorder, pivotitis, and you just brought up product diseases again. Do you have, what other diseases are out there? <laughs> okay. I think the other one is locked-in syndrome. So, you know, actually it's, it's very relevant to what we see in the news today. So the whole Boeing 737 MAX, I really view that as an example of locked-in syndrome. So the 737 MAX, for example, was born because Boeing was trying to compete with a new airline, the A320neo that Airbus put out, right, which was doing really well in the market. And so they wanted to come up with something really quickly to compete with that. So they had an existing platform, the 737, which was doing really well. So they just used the same thing and built on top of that. Even when, you know, there were changes that this, this design change was causing like dynamic instability, et cetera, but they were really tied to this platform. So that's an example of locked-in syndrome. And all of what we hear about, you know, the MCAS system that was designed to be able to, you know, overcome kind of this, the issue that the plane's nose would tip upwards and cause the plane to stall. All of these were workarounds because Boeing was locked into 737 as the platform. So that's locked-in syndrome. Another example, which I see very often in startups, is hero syndrome, right? And I have definitely incurred this as well when I started my first company called Lobby 7. You know, we are VC funded. And hero syndrome is where you're trying to scale, go big. It's all about, you know, hitting scale to the point where you kind of forget what it is you really set out to solve in the first place. So what we really start caring about are metrics like, you know, how much funding have we raised? Uh, how many people have we hired? And so on, instead of like, really, have we proven out our unit economics? And we see a lot of that, right? So that's hero syndrome. Another one is hypermetricemia, where we measure a lot of popular metrics. So, you know, what we call pirate metrics in product terms, or, you know, these metrics where we're trying to just measure everything instead of really figuring out what is telling us whether we're getting actually closer to the vision that we set out for us in the first place. 
So those are just a few. But really, I think now that we have this term of product diseases, like you can start to look at your own organization and even come up with some of your own definitions of product diseases because you start to see them. Yeah, you can apply some of the generic cliches like analysis paralysis diseases to the product org too, right? That's very true. Yeah, there you go. That's another one. So, you know, as part of this radical product movement in your book, you've interviewed a lot of product visionaries. Talk to me about some of your big takeaways from those conversations. Yeah. So one of the biggest ones that, you know, has come up repeatedly is this idea that, you know, in building our companies, we always think about having a visionary at the top and everyone else is following that one person's vision, right? This is kind of how we always, this theme that we keep seeing over and over. And a really like popular example is Elon Musk, right? He's seen as the visionary and then everyone else around him is following that vision. Or And we feel the same way about Steve Jobs, etc. So the way I'd like to challenge this is, you know, what I see among visionaries is that, Visionaries can come from any level within the organization. So what's most important really is having what I call vision without boundaries. So the example I want to give is, you know, I interviewed Margaret Hamilton. Margaret Hamilton is, you know, if we think about Neil Armstrong, who landed on the moon and was able to walk on the moon, it was because Margaret Hamilton made that possible. So she's the one who wrote the software she uh, led the software team for in-flight guidance and controls. So, you know, when I interviewed Margaret Hamilton, like I was asking her kind of to just share more details of kind of what happened. And basically there was a hardware failure about three minutes before the lunar lander was set to touch down on the moon in the Apollo 11 mission. And, you know, there was a call that needed to be made by mission control. In the case of this, hardware failure, whether to give the astronauts the go-ahead or not. What had happened was that the in-flight computer was being overwhelmed by data because of this hardware failure, and it was just unable to make all the calculations required of it. But mission control was able to give them the go-ahead, and that's because Margaret Hamilton had designed this software that had architected the software so that the in-flight computer would drop all these extra tasks and would just focus on the prioritized list of tasks that were given to it that were absolutely essential for doing the landing. And so, you know, we think about just the times when the software was written, right? At the time, software engineering wasn't even a thing. It was actually a term that was coined by Margaret. And she coined it to give software some legitimacy. And then when I asked her, like, how did you come up with, you know, such a vision, right? Her answer was that she felt the sense of responsibility for astronauts' lives. And so based on that, she felt like anything that could go wrong was going to try its utmost to do so. And her vision for writing software was that software should be able to recover from anything that happens and detect errors and recover from them, right? And so we think about the fact that, you know, Margaret Hamilton, she could have absolutely looked at herself as just a computer programmer, right? She was not the person who was leading the organization and thinking about herself as the visionary, right? She was 
one of so many people. And yet she was able to have this vision because of a culture that she describes as, you know, vision without boundaries. And that's really the kind of thing we need to create in our organizations where every person at every level should have a very clear vision. You know, John F. Kennedy had this vision of, we want to put man on the moon. But then every person had to think about what does that mean for me? And they had to have the shared responsibility and come up with their own vision for how they could help translate that into the real world. And so this vision without boundaries is what we really need in every organization and cultivate visionaries. So that's a lot of what I talk about as part of this radical product thinking, where it's not just product managers who need to be product thinkers. We can really spread this thinking across our entire organization where we think about the change each of us individually want to create through our roles. And then our product is kind of how we're creating this change. So whether you're a software engineer or you know someone in customer support, each of us is actually delivering a product. So I think the idea of product thinking is much wider. And that's really what I've discovered from a lot of the interviews that I've done with uh, the visionaries. So how does this all relate to the concept of responsibility, right? Product people, we're actively trying to change people's lives and, and, and influence them. Does that imply that product managers too, they'll also have a bigger responsibility in their lives, one that extends beyond the business? And if so, how should product managers be dealing with this responsibility? Right. And this theme of responsibility has come up really often in my discussion with visionaries, right? This is like a core characteristic of high-performing teams, that they feel the sense of shared responsibility for their vision. But extending beyond that, right, I think what we're realizing as a society is that, you know, as business and product leaders, we're really changing people's lives. So we're basically saying we see a problem in this world and we are going to fix it, right? And so if we think about who else does that, it's doctors, right? So doctors, they say, okay, you're sick. I'm going to prescribe this medication for you. But imagine your doctor says to you, look, I'm going to give you this medicine, but I take no responsibility for what happens to you afterwards, right? Our first reaction would be, well, if you're taking no responsibility for how that makes me feel, then you really have no business treating me, right? Absolutely. This we've come to this realization about medicine after a really long time. Like it took the Hippocratic Oath, the first version came out in like the uh, in about 800, I think, AD. And it wasn't until 1700s that the Hippocratic Oath was actually used in practice. And so we're at that really nascent stage where we're just starting to learn that, you know, as product and business leaders, we're really affecting people's lives. You know, until now, I think we we had this glimmer of, you know, optimism, I'd say, that, you know, we can create the perfect products, right, by putting enough attention to it. But the reality is that no matter kind of what we create, we end up affecting lives and there are unintended consequences. We see Facebook as an example, but like, anything we touch, there tend to be unintended consequences. Even dating apps, right? Let's take one that's not been really controversial. Okay, Cupid, right? They've been great, they've been progressive, etc. But even Okay, Cupid, 
they've seen that black women get the fewest dates or even messages through their dating app. And what we find is that, you know, as we use things like collaborative filtering algorithms in dating apps, it ends up affecting, like in, in the process of maximizing usage so that, you know, similar to Netflix, I'll just show you movies that you're likely to like, we're actually reinforcing some of society's bad elements like, you know, racism, etc., through these apps. So no matter what we are doing as product leaders, whenever we're trying to maximize usage, there are some trade-offs that we're making and we're affecting people's lives. And so, you know, that brings us to this point where what do we do as product leaders, right? On the one hand, we can say, which is what Facebook is saying today, that we need more regulation. But we're always going to find that regulations are always going to play catch up because the more sophisticated technologies that come out, whether it's, you know, more access to more powerful AI, gene editing, et cetera, you know, we're going to find that it'll always take some time for regulations to catch up, which means what can we do as product leaders? And the answer that I see, right, for a while to come until we really start to understand these unintended consequences is that we have to at least think about what can consequences be. We have to keep thinking about what's the world we want to create and keep testing. Are we getting closer or further away from that uh, vision we have for the world we want to create? And we have to take responsibility for what we're doing. So really the kinds of things that happen right now, which is, you know, for example, Amazon saying that we're going to create this, you know, face recognition as a service, but not take responsibility for it. Those are the things that, you know, I think are really unconscionable. And we as product and business leaders really have to say, okay, if I'm treating a problem in this world, then I have to be willing to take responsibility for what I end up creating in the world and actively try to create the world that I envision, not just maximize for profits or usage. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And you mentioned regulation there, too. I think by taking responsibility, we lessen the possibility that there's going to be overly burdensome regulation or regulations put in place by people that maybe don't understand the underlying technology. So I I think there's a benefit for us taking as product people taking responsibility early from a regulatory standpoint, too. Right. And, you know, I completely understand the need to balance the reality of our business goals, right? So, you know, something that I talk about when I'm actually managing some of these priorities, even in my own projects, is I like to think about it as a two-by-two rubric. So an X and a Y axis. So if we think about your Y axis being the vision fit, we ask ourselves on this y-axis, you know, is this bringing me closer to the vision or not? And then the x-axis is, is it helping me in terms of my business goals or survival rather, right? And so for most of us, survival has to do with finances, business goals, but it could also be related to stakeholders or making stakeholders happy. It really depends on your organization. But we end up balancing, like every decision we make really ends up balancing. Is it helping us get closer to the vision? And is it helping us with our business goals or, you know, minimizing risk for us in the future, right? So bringing us closer towards sustainability. So on this X and Y axis, I'll say, if 
you are both getting closer towards your vision and it's helping you survive another day, that's ideal, right? So that's, you know, a lot of what we take on. Those are the easy decisions. The hard stuff is where, you know, we tend to take on things that's helping us with our survival, but it's actually taking us further away from our vision. And that's the quadrant that I call the danger zone where it's vision debt, right? And so this, when we talked, for instance, about the custom feature that you'd want to build for your customers, that goes into vision debt because that custom feature may not actually help you with your vision. And so as we tend to build too much vision debt, that's where we start to get obsessive sales disorder. And when we, for instance, start saying, you know, we're not taking responsibility for something, but it, hey, it helps us financially, right? We're starting to incur more and more of this vision debt. And the opposite of that is where we are doing vision investment, meaning that it's helping us with our, uh, bring us closer to our vision, but it's actually you know, maybe adding more risk to our execution or survival, right? And so in that case, that's something where we're investing in the vision. So if we're, for instance, refactoring code, etc., that's where we end up, you know, having to take some time or resources and invest in the vision. So every time we do this vision debt, we have to ask ourselves, okay, how are we going to make good on it by actually investing in the vision? So that's kind of maybe a way of thinking about it that helps us put the practicalities of our business goals, you know, in, in perspective as well. So talk to me about vision a little more. What, what do product managers tend to get wrong when creating their vision? You know, I think one of the biggest ones is I think we've learned over, over time that our vision has to be something that is aspirational, that's big, right? We keep hearing this term, what's your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? And so we tend to create sound bites of our vision instead of articulating in great detail kind of what's the world that we envision. And that's kind of the, the biggest challenge that I've seen. So what happens is, you know, we create vision statements like, you know, to disrupt, blah, or to be the leader in, blah. So instead, what I typically do with product teams is, instead of going for a soundbite, let's actually articulate what that world looks like in a lot of detail. So that vision, that articulated vision, should contain information on, whose world do you want to change? What does that world look like for them today? And why does it even need changing? Because maybe it doesn't need changing. And then the last is, how does that world look when you've changed it for them, when you've solved that problem for them? And how will you bring about that change? So it's these four questions, which is the who, what, why, and the how. So that's really the essence of uh, your vision, right? And the way we make this easy and that's where the radical product toolkit comes in it's this free toolkit that we've created as part of radical product thinking so that anyone who wants to create vision driven change should easily be able to do so and in this toolkit we've created this fill in the blank statement right that helps you really encapsulate your who what why and the how in one coherent sentence so the sentence reads like this it says today when the who, so this identified group of users want to do a certain task, then they have to do this. And this is their current solution, right? 
this is unacceptable because, and this is the why, like why is this such a bad world to live in? We envision a world where, what does that world look like when you've solved the problem? And we're bringing about this world by doing blah. And this is, you know, where you get to describe how you're creating this world. So we've created this fill in the blank statement. And what I tell product teams to do is, you know, have each person fill out this statement individually. And you do this as a group exercise and you fill this out and you talk about, you know, what you wrote down in your vision. And it really helps you see as a whole team kind of where you're already aligned and where you really differ in views on the who, what, why, and the how. And it really helps you, you know, air out these differences and create buy-in on the whole team in terms of, you know, what that collective vision is. And, And it answers so many questions. Like it's never happened to me that the answers to any of these questions were ever obvious, right? I did this exercise just yesterday where we started off saying, you know, this product is for everyone in the company. And by the end of the conversation, we said, you know what, actually it's not, right? And that's the kind of questioning that it leads to when you're doing this as a group exercise. And it always leads to insights that, you know, we somehow started off by assuming, well, this was obvious until you actually talk through the who, what, why, and the how. That's very interesting. I like that. So now people can, through your website, get access to your kit, right? Yeah, it's downloadable for free, and it's on uh, www.radicalproduct.com. Awesome. That sounds great. I think that's something people should check out. So we've talked about a lot today. What are your biggest three takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, I think the biggest three I can think of, the first is, you know, we have to envision the world that you're really inspired to create. And, you know, I think you can tell if you've found that clear vision, if you're able to define the who, what, why, and the how. And we have to think about our product as our mechanism for creating that change. So meaning that your product is only successful if you're actually succeeding in creating that change. And I like to think of this as, you know, the metrics that actually are your success metrics that help you figure out, are you creating that right change? And then there are the other metrics, which are more of your survival metrics, right? Which is your business goals, et cetera. So thinking about your metrics and in those separate terms helps you think about, are we engineering our product to be able to bring about the change that we want to create? And the last takeaway I'd say is, you know, working on creating this sense of shared responsibility in the team First of all, because it really helps you motivate the team. But the second is because, you know, when we really think about whose world do we want to change and why, it helps us remember every day that we're affecting people's lives so that we can actually take responsibility for it. So those are um, the three takeaways, I'd say. Awesome. That was great. So as we're wrapping up here, let's turn the subject to you. I'd be remiss as a wine guy if I didn't go back to your early wine company and at least ask you a question. So what's your favorite type of wine varietal? And do you have a favorite wine, a favorite uh, producer? (laughs) You know, that's a really interesting question. I have been in Singapore for the last year and I've absolutely not had much wine. Here's the problem with having a wine startup. 
you start getting really picky about the wine that you drink because you discover some really good wines. And now, you know, your price point for wine goes up. And here in Singapore, uh, alcohol is taxed pretty heavily. So yeah, given that I'm currently living in Singapore for the last year, the wines that I really like are way out of my budget. Like they don't even start below 50 bucks. But back in the US, so there was one particular wine that really stood out for me when I was doing my wine startup. Uh, it's called Sharp Cellars. That's the winemaker. So Sharp's Pinot Noir, that was really my, my favorite. It's from Sonoma Coast. Awesome. Awesome. Now, what's your personal favorite product? Excellent question. So, uh, and I'll answer this question from two perspectives. Right now, my favorite product is Khan Academy for Kids. And the reason it's my favorite is because, you know, I love the fact that their vision is about democratizing education and they actually stand by it. So when you look at the app, right, it's very gender neutral. The badges, the avatars that you unlock, even in word problems, the names of the people that they use, they're very often gender neutral. And many educational apps, they do things that maximize usage. But a lot of that includes, you know, gaming, that includes fighting and action, right? But they don't think about how that affects usage across all sexes. And so I have a son and a daughter, and I'm deeply grateful for Khan Academy's gender neutrality. So I really love that as a product. The second thing that, you know, I want to mention in terms of this question is, I love this as, you know, a question that, you know, I often talk to product leaders about, right? But I actually wrote an article about this when I was talking about the best and worst questions to ask in an interview for hiring a product manager. So this is actually one question that I've often seen come up in interviews, right? And I actually recommend against asking this question. And the reason, by the way, is that I think it's super important that we're trying to hire product managers who are very diverse. And what I've found is that this question often, you know, if people are very honest in terms of what's their favorite app, their answer might either get you to be really enthusiastic or it might be, you know, something that seems very dull to you. So, you know, people who don't have kids or don't really feel passionately about this particular gender issue would really not think about Khan Academy and the app so much and, you know, wouldn't identify with why this is such uh, a favorite app for me, right? And so in interview questions, like this is one of those questions where it puts people who may be from a very different user type from you at a disadvantage. And so if we're really trying to create diverse teams where people are thinking very differently, and especially given this world that, you know, we're trying to create where everyone is trying to create a change in this world, right? We want to create change that works for all of us. And so we need to create diversity in product and right now, by the way, our diversity numbers are really bad. So even just gender diversity in product, if you look at the starting position, so associate product manager, the split between men and women, women make up about 47%. Whereas if you look at chief product officer, women make up only 14%. And that's just, you know, gender diversity, right? And so this question is one of those that, you know, I love to just ask among friends, but one that I always keep away from when we're actually interviewing for a job. 
Yeah, I think that is a good point. It's a question that can be used in both the right and the wrong ways. And I think for the job interviews one, I like questions more like, talk to me about a product that you think is well-built and why do you think it meets their needs of their users or something like that. It doesn't have to be a favorite, but something that, you know, that you like how the the product managers have gone about, you know, creating and sustaining their vision. I think that that ends up being a better interview question, right? Right, right. Exactly. I completely agree with you. And even getting people to describe their own, right, uh, and mistakes they've made, kind of uh, understanding what their vision was. I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. We could, and we could spend a whole podcast probably on the, the interviewing process and how to do it well. <laughs> yeah. So one final question for you today, uh, three words to describe yourself. <laughs> so this, I think, is probably the hardest question that you've had for me today. And I actually, you know, had to think a lot about this one because on the one hand, right, my answers on this could come across as really arrogant and narcissistic. But at the same time, like, you know, it doesn't make sense to be overly modest, right? So I'm going to answer this question with uh, three words, but I'll also describe kind of why these qualities are both good and bad. So the first one for me is that uh, I'm really passionate. So the good thing about this is that it helps me bring this infectious enthusiasm to whatever I'm working on. But the flip side to that, and the bad thing is that, you know, when you're deeply passionate, it's really hard to separate work and life. And so whether I'm working on my book, a job, or, you know, even when I'm just consulting, it's really hard for me to distance myself from the project. uh, And which means that achieving work-life balance for me is really hard. The second word I'd use is tenacious. The good thing about that is that it really makes me persistent, right? I just never give up. But you put together passionate and tenacious together, uh, more is obsessive. <laughs> they don't even use the, use the word borderline obsessive. They just say I get obsessed with whatever I'm working on. And the third thing is authentic. So I deeply care about building authentic relationships. And this serves me well in working with teams. Uh, And in fact, you know, like a fun fact is that I still keep in touch with almost every boss that I've ever had, including, you know, my internship from 20 years ago when, you know, I was still a student, right? But the bad thing is that uh, this means that I find social media really frustrating because just social media doesn't seem authentic to me. So there you go. So passionate, tenacious, uh, and authentic. Love it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people.